following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. In this church history sermon series, we take a look at people and events that still speak to our time and place. For more information, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Good morning. It's good to be with you. For those of you that are visiting, uh, don't know the normal course of events. My name is Jordan, one of the pastors here, but I am not the usual person right here right now. Uh, so we are working through a short summer series on church history. Uh, and so while we will be kind of looking at that text uh, in bits and pieces this morning, we're going to be mentioning and talking about some other texts as well. So we will be jumping around a little bit this morning. Um, and that is because, as Chris and Stacy have already said, as we've uh, begun this series, we are taking a look at people and events throughout church history. It's a pretty broad, random, random spectrum that we've ended up choosing. Um, and we want to do that because we believe, number one, church history is important. God is working through the people and events of, of church history to uh, play out his plan, his story. Uh, but we want to see, too, that God works providentially um, in amazing ways, and there are pastoral and practical ramifications for all of these events. So not only do we want to just tell you about the event itself, which is fine and good, but we want to draw implications from that that really speak to where we're at today. So this might have happened hundreds of years ago, and yet what does it mean for us as a body of believers today? Uh, and how have we been affected maybe by that? So that's, that's the purpose in this series. And so hopefully we can do that again today. And so we're not in any one text. We're not working through it verse by verse. We're taking a look at some texts that are probably pretty well known to us and pulling out some things as reminders, by way of reminders. Um, at least that's my, my plan this morning. And yet I pray that it will still be beneficial, hugely beneficial to us before we jump into our next book series. Let's just pause for a moment and ask God to be present with us and working in us as we talk in the next few minutes. God, we are grateful to be gathered, to be a people that you have called out to proclaim your name and also to come and gather and have you proclaim once again your gospel to us. And this time is important for us as individuals, as a church family. We thank you for giving the gift of music, the gift of your word, the gift of your spirit, the gift of uh, one another, the community of faith. Um, that these things can prompt and encourage and restore and change. These truths are all things that we hold tightly to today, and we thank you that you work in and through them. We ask simply that you would do that again today in these next few minutes together. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so today's topic uh, is dealing with, honestly, it's a, it's a little remembered uh, 18th century debate, and the debate took place within Scottish Presbyterianism, uh, and it is known as the Marrow Controversy. Now, I'll explain that a little bit more as we get into it, but just starting off that way, welcoming you into a discussion about an 18th century debate in Scottish Presbyterianism, I mean, there might be a few of you ladies in here that you heard the word Scottish, and you were like, ooh, this might be kind of good. I mean, maybe figures. Here, I'm trying to do a joke and my <laughs> presenter won't work. So maybe you hear the word Scottish and a couple of you ladies are like, ooh, this is going to be good. Um, yeah, you know who you are. Um, 
The rest of you probably, upon hearing 18th century, 300 years ago, Scottish, Presbyterianism, you're hearing this thing and you're like, oh, you're, in your mind you're picturing maybe something more <laughs> like that. <laughs> right? So that's maybe where your mind takes you. And so I recognize this is probably not the type of subject matter you grab and you take to the beach with you for vacation for, you know, stellar reading. Um, for me personally, I hated history until, honestly, till, till college, and I started actually studying scripture and church history along with that, and then all of a sudden it was like, okay, this stuff matters, and all of a sudden I love history of any type, not every era per se, but I love history. And um, so for a lot of us, though, it's just like, ah, this, this stuff's kind of boring. What does it matter? Why do we have to talk about it? Um, I'm hoping that even though this is the subject matter I chose, uh, and sometimes I wonder, why did I do that? I'm starting myself out in a hole. Um, hopefully, this is not the case for you. Um, and yet, if it is, maybe that will change a little bit by the time we're done. So regardless of your thoughts, that's not Presbyterianism, by the way. I don't know what that might be. Catholicism, Anglicanism, I don't know. Regardless, that is the subject matter that um, brings us together today. Um <clears throat> <laughs> I practiced that for a while. <laughs> the subject matter uh, that was dealt with in this controversy uh, is, is not lost on our time and place. And this is one of the things that like, very much attracted me to this subject is as I began reading what was happening in that time and place, I was uh, hit over and over again about the fact that this is hugely relevant for now. Um, and it's been relevant throughout all church history, honestly, um, because the nature of the controversy dealt with the nature of God himself, the part that God plays and Christ plays in salvation. What is the purpose of the law for the Christian? What was the purpose of the law throughout redemptive history? What is the nature of grace? Can we have assurance of the gospel? All of these theological things that um, caused some strife within the established church at that time and some men um, that were... Uh, in the midst of that church. But as it plays out, honestly, these are questions that impact all Christianity. They impact all of our lives through every generation throughout church history. Um, and so I believe that uh, it is very important for us, and I hope as it plays out, we realize, yeah, this is good. And even though we might already hear it and say, oh, I believe that, I, I believe that to be true already, that if nothing else, it's a great reminder to us of a loving Heavenly Father who gave His Son for us. Um, I will mention, too, that if you are so inclined to read such things on your beach vacation, uh, you can actually uh, use this book right here. And this was the, the catalyst to uh, the topic this morning. The book is called The Whole Christ. Um, it's actually just published earlier this year. Um, it's written by Sinclair Ferguson, a good Scottish theologian. Um, so I'm sure the uh, nature of the argument is special to him. Um, but it stems from actually like probably th almost three decades now of his study on this controversy to bring the controversy more to light. Um, started out with a series of lectures that he did back in the 80s um, for a small little conference, and it's stemmed from there. Um, I cannot recommend this book enough. It's, it's excellent in every way. And in fact, unless you're going to like a Catholic blog, <laughs> um, you can probably, it's probably hard pressed to find somebody writing a negative review on it. They're, they're stretching to try and, 
you know, critique it at all. Um, it's, it's very good. Um, and while it might be heavy reading at times, it's still, I think, very worthwhile to, to wade through. Um, so I would recommend it. It is, um, I'll be unapologetic about the fact that a lot of the content and the flow, some of the flow of thought this morning um, stems from just Ferguson's writing in this book. Um, it is great. So I recommend that, the whole Christ. And to make a tie, because one of the things we were talking about with church history was the fact that, man, how does these things in church history show um, that Cornerstone hasn't been impacted in some way, or that Cornerstone is related to these things in some way? Um, well, I'll have you know, here's the connection. Um, Nathan Kassebaum's sister, Claire, works for Crossway, the publisher of this book, uh, and she actually wrote the desk jacket verbiage here. So if you take, it out, uh, take a look at the book and uh, check out the dusk jacket, that is Claire's writing. And so I would, because of that, wholeheartedly claim this is Cornerstone's book. It's ours. That's our connection. <laughs> um, Sue actually saw Claire a couple weeks ago at the, the conference. There she is there. They actually posed with the book. Is that awesome? <laughs> They held the book up and got the picture. So there's Claire. So there's our cornerstone connection. If we find no other connection whatsoever, we've got the connection with uh, the Kassebaum connection there. All right. Um, let's dig in a little bit here. What I'm going to try and do is show just some of the nature of the controversy, set the stage for the story itself and what was happening, and then um, kind of tell you what topics played out of that actual controversy, um, and then why, why does that matter? What bearing does it have on us? Um, do we, in uh, certain ways, espouse some of the same erroneous views? Do we struggle with understanding certain things? So that is the, the plan today. So, like I said, 18th century uh, Scottish Presbyterian controversy, and it starts in the winter of 1717, uh, and there are, of course, monthly and yearly assemblies of the Presbytery uh, that get together. They decide things and pertains to like church doctrine and then basically church methodology, how they're going to flesh that doctrine out in the life of the church. Um, and uh, one of the big things they do, though, is welcome new ministers that have been in training. They welcome new ministers into uh, the, the life of the Presbytery and actually uh, confirm them and ordain them as, as pastors in the denomination. And so it was happening in the winter of 1717 that one man, William Craig, was in line to be uh, acknowledged and accepted in the Presbytery. And they were meet meeting in Octorarder. Now, some of you might recognize that name. Octorarder is a town in Scotland um, that is well known for the Glen Eagles Hotel. Uh, Glen Eagles Hotel hosts um, things like the G8 Summit a few years ago, was hosted there. Probably more recognizable for the, the golf tournaments it holds there at the Country Club. Any of you that are golf fans, um, I think it was just a couple of years ago, the Ryder Cup was hosted there. So it's a beautiful place. Um, in 1717, the assembly was meeting in Octorarder and making decisions on some things. And... Uh, in the process of determining uh, a, a pastoral candidate, there's, of course, um, a, a long process, but one of them is just to kind of test them on their theology, what they know. And in the midst of that, they sometimes like to throw out certain questions that this person has to either agree to or disagree to. 
that might be worded a little tricky. They might a little, like come across as trick questions trying to make this pastoral candidate really think through not just the substance of the theology, but how that might play out in their pastoring people in certain settings. And so one of these statements uh, became known as the Octorarder Creed, and I believe I have it here. This was the statement that poor William Craig was asked to either affirm or deny uh, when he was in this process of ordination. Now you read it, and uh, trying to get through maybe some of the, the syntax and language that we don't use today, it, it's a pretty simple statement. Um, and uh, you might think as you read it, like, well, that's, that's an easy thing to answer. Well, in this time and place, um, William Craig kind of bounced back and forth on how he would answer this statement. And what took place was not just the fact that he bounced back and forth on the statement, the actual assembly bounced back and forth on what they really thought uh, the purpose of this in their, in their flow of uh, ordination was. And there was a mixed view on the assembly as to whether they should affirm or deny such a statement. Ultimately, what happened to make a, a longer story a little shorter, um, the church condemned this statement. Um, they said they didn't like it, they didn't want it, um, and uh, ultimately William Craig was given his license to pastor uh, based on how he finally answered the question uh, in agreement with the council so that it didn't cause any, um, any difficulties. So initially they were trying to kind of smooth things over He's like, yeah, I don't like that either. Don't believe that. The council ultimately condemns it and says, let's not use this anymore. This is no good. Um, and on they go. Well, what seems like probably a very, very, very minor thing in the greater picture of what was happening with all of the subject matters of the assembly and honestly in all the questions that were asked by this um, or asked to this young William Craig, uh, this right here stemmed quite a big controversy in the Scottish church. <clears throat> there was a man on the assembly that day who had been a pastor uh, in a little Scottish town by the river right on the, the England-Scotland border, and he had been a pastor at this little church for half a dozen or more years, but he had been uh, ordained with uh, the denomination for 15 or so years by now. His name was Thomas Boston. And Thomas Boston at this point was not well known at all. There's Thomas there. He was not well known at all, but he, through the controversy and then through his writings later on, became uh, one of the more well-known and respected men in all of the Church of Scotland um, and its history. Um, he was 41 at the time uh, that this assembly met, and he was not at all pleased with what happened with the con condemning of the statement, um, and it was really kind of the cusp of what to him had been years of wrestling with what he believed had become a certain dead orthodoxy within the church, uh, a certain type of uh, deadness to truth that while there was orthodox belief in the Reformed tradition and the church adhered to the Westminster Confession of Faith, there was a lack of liveliness that went with the theology they espoused. And so in practical daily living and pastoring and discipleship, uh, there was not a lot of grace or love in his mind. Um, he had enjoyed being a pastor the first few years, but by the time he took this little church on the riverside, this church was, in his mind, um, very focused on other priorities, very kind of this world-oriented, 
Um, they were very self-righteous, self-focused on uh, their own things. They were indifferent to a lot of practical, experiential truth. And so he said this, that by this point, um, though he had enjoyed pastoring in the past, um, he at this point in time said that when the approach, with the approaching Sabbath that sometimes had been his delight, it was now a terror to him. And so he was kind of going through a crisis of sorts, and part of that crisis too, not just stemmed with what he saw in the rest of the church, but something that had enlivened him to um, kind of an own, his own personal revival, um, his own um, kind of rediscovery of gospel-centered ministry and biblical truth. Back up a few years, and Thomas Boston had been visiting a person in his church who had been a soldier in the Civil Wars, and this person had brought back a couple books with him from England. One of those books was a book by the title of The Marrow of Modern Divinity. Now, this book was already 70-some, 80-some years old, written by a man named Edward Fisher, which to this day, we don't really know a lot about this guy, but he wrote this book, um, and it was actually quite a, quite a treatise. It was a, a hefty book. And Thomas Boston discovered this book sitting on a window ledge when he went to visit this guy in his church. And it, the, the title, um, as I'm sure no doubt would have struck you as very interesting, The Marrow of Modern Divinity, also struck him as very interesting. And so he asked to borrow it and took it home. And it was only actually a part of the book at that time. It wasn't the full, the full thing. And as Boston read through this book, he found not only did it aliven him once again to the beauties of the gospel, but that it really kind of put some of the things that were happening in the Church of Scotland at that, light in, at that time in, in a new light for him. And he, he felt that he had discovered why it was there was just this, this dead orthodoxy in the church, and he was not happy about it. This book, The Marrow of Modern Divinity, was unique in the sense, too, that uh, it was written like a dialogue. Um, so we can maybe have some more of those things now. I could think of like even like the screw tape letters that C.S. Lewis wrote. It's kind of like a dialogue between um, a couple different characters. This was written in the same way, but it's written in the 16, 1640s, and it's um, a dialogue between four, four people. Uh, Neophytus is basically a new believer. He's one of the main characters in the book. He's a new believer, and he's just struggling with aspects of the gospel. What does this mean? If this is true, then what does this mean? Basically, theology playing itself out in, in practical ways. So Neophytus, and then Evangelista was the pastor who's counseling him. He's dialoguing with Neophytus in the book. And then two other people, uh, Nomista, who is a legalist, and Antinomista, who is uh, the opposite of a legalist. He's an antinomian, okay? And so we have these four people entering in dialogue. And so uh, Thomas Boston found this fascinating as he's reading through it and really enjoyed the book. And yet, as I said, uh, he discovered that it was hugely beneficial to his own soul, his own ministry, and, uh, and was helpful. And so enter him into this assembly in 1717, watching what's taking place with William Craig. And he was not happy with what's going on. He agreed that the creed was maybe worded a little bit um, abstractly and maybe wasn't the best worded, and yet he held wholeheartedly to the fact that there is no uh, prerequisites to the offer of the gospel to any and all. Uh, and so he began a discussion, honestly, with the person sitting next to him that day in the assembly. The guy's name was uh, John Drummond, another Scottish pastor who is a little bit more well-known now in, in, uh, in church history. 
Um, but he and John Drummond started a conversation, and Boston explained to him this book, and he had been reading the book, and he passed it off to John, and John read the book, and both of them started to say, wow, there's something, um, something that's maybe bigger here than we're letting on, and maybe we should say something about it. So as time played itself out, more and more men and friends of these guys, pastors of these guys, started to read the book, work through some of this theology, and work through some of where the Church of Scotland was at, and started a little bit of an uproar uh, in regards to simple statements like this, and to more or less what the church was, was holding to at that time. And so it became known as the Marrow Controversy, named after uh, the title of the book. And these men became known as Marrow Men, the Marrow Men. All right? Not the Merry Men, the Marrow Men. Though they were basically accused of being antinomian about basically thinking that the law had no part, the commandments of God had no part in the Christian life. They were just, let's do the free grace thing and run. So they were accused of that, so maybe merry men would be good too. Um, but these marrow men honestly wanted to see a gospel-centered, Christ-exalting type of theology sink back into the church, which wasn't basically, it, it was not a, um, a drastic change to the theology that the Church of Scotland already said it espoused. The confessions of faith were, were very orthodox, very theologically minded, but very pastorally driven too, um, with a lot of life in them, and yet the church had just kind of forgotten about that uh, based on some subtle leanings in certain directions. And so these marrow men fought against that and fought again for uh, lively a lively uh, explanation of the gospel to all men um, and fought for, honestly, an experiential Christian life that was not just tied to a, a, a head knowledge of theology but was living and active uh, in life. So some of the things that they brought out, and I'm just going to overview them basically this morning, touch on them quickly because um, we don't have a lot of time to dig deep. I, again, strongly recommend get the book and read it. The, the guy, Ferguson, just with such um, depth and richness, digs into these things so well. Um, it'd be, be uh, a good, good for your soul and a challenge to your soul, I, I, I know too. But like Stacy said last week, um, some of these topics, you bite off more than you can chew, and to dig deep into any of these specifically would... Uh, be the same way. So I want to basically highlight, give you a level of things, and remind us of some things even with the Luke 15 text. So the issues, I mentioned a couple of these earlier in passing. Uh, the first and foremost is, uh, uh, issue stemming directly from the controversy was the gospel of the grace of God and how it interacts with proclaiming that gospel to all people everywhere. So that was the first big one. And then offshoots of that that came out after was basically the gospel and legalism. What's, what, what's the relationship of that? The gospel and antinomianism, and the gospel and assurance of salvation. And so you can see that even some of the characters within the, the marrow of modern divinity um, and the subjects that they represented uh, came up in this um, controversy. So first off, the gospel of grace and the love of God, which was the direct stem from the Octorata Creed and the initial controversy that came that came up. Um, it was in regards to how they should be preaching the gospel. So to reduce it to the simplest form, the question being asked, the thing being argued over was, what do you say when you call people to come to Christ? And then on what grounds are those people entitled to come? All right, so the two natures of that question, what do you say to call people to the gospel and how are they entitled, how are they entitled to come? 
what had happened by this time in the history of the Church of Scotland was that they had taken orthodox theology and they had run in maybe some subtly wrong directions with it, or they had some category conv- confusion with different truths. All right, so historic reform theology says God elects before the foundation of the world. That election is not based on anything anybody within history uh, can ever do to merit that election. It is unconditional, okay? They also believe that the work of Christ on the cross was specifically designed by God in his plan to save those who God before time had elected. So the work of Christ was not just an abstract type of, well, let's go do that and then see what kind of fruit that it can produce you know, in saving a people. Let's just make it possible for everybody to believe by dying on the cross. Reformed theology would say, no, God the Father chose and then sent the Son freely, graciously into the world to live and die so that his death would be um, efficacious. It would be real and certain atonement for the people that God had chosen before time began. And that is historic Reformed belief. Um, I believe it is good and fine belief. Um, And yet what had happened here was they had added something to this belief so that not only did they say that election was unconditional, but they said now because of the way in which we understand the work of Christ to save these people, that there is also going to be signs in these people's lives that they are indeed the elect ones so that we can give them the gospel and they'll accept. All right? This is subtle, um, but it is harmful, deeply harmful. Basically, they said this to kind of set it up in uh, kind of a based on this, therefore this kind of thing. They were saying this, number one, the, the saving grace of God in Christ is given to the elect, those that God chose to foreknow before time began. Um, And then also a practical outworking of that is another truth. Forsaking of sin is is something that the elect do. As the elect live out their Christian lives, they forsake sin to look more like Christ as their image is restored. They took these two things that are somewhat different categories, one dealing with the nature of justification and one maybe more the signs of that being made righteous in God, the signs of salvation, and that they produce love and good works through the work of the Spirit. Um, they, they combined in a wrong way. And so their conclusion based on these two things is that basically let's forsake sin and that's the prerequisite to being saved. So they're putting the cart before the horse a little bit. Okay, So they're coming at it and they're saying... Listen, Christians or those that will be Christians will forsake sin. Let's look for people that seem to be repentant, that seem to have a good ethic, a good life ethic, and that will kind of be the sign to us that we can offer the gospel to them. And so then they would go to do that. Imagine what that does for the beauty to declare the gospel that God in his grace comes and gives life to a bunch of undeserving people. Um, We don't have to talk about that very long to realize all the bad places that can go. So again, we see that their basic theology, again, is orthodox, and I don't have a problem with it. That's where I would stand, too. I know not everybody stands there. There are a lot of good, godly people that would see the workings of atonement and election differently, um, and that, that is fine. That doesn't turn you into a heretic in how you preach the gospel. There are a lot of good and godly people that also um, agree with this, Um, and yet just believing that, some people would say, well, that's going to cause certain legalism and cause certain things like this, but that's not the case. Their, their theology was, was 
fine and good and correct. Um, and yet they took what was something that can only play out in the life of the believer because the Spirit is working in them and said, we're going to see this beforehand and then that will be the basis in which we offer the gospel to them. What that does then too is basically lets us say, well, we have something there at the beginning that we can do that brings us to God in some way. What is God's acceptance of us based on? Mm, I, I seem to be penitent. I seem to you know, have a desire to live a certain way, maybe more ethically to, tied to the commandments of God than somebody else, one of these pagans. And so over time, this dead orthodoxy is dead orthodoxy because people have a self-righteousness. They think they're entitled to something. They run with that. And it is not at all based on the fact that Christ being offered to everybody and Christ, the words of Calvin, I believe, actually Christ clothed in his gospel is what we offer to anybody and all. Because we know that any and all who believe and come to Christ are saved and that that was the exact plan and working of God from the beginning. We are not, we're not the ones called to, to make the decisions. We're not the ones called to do the work that God has already done. Um, we are called to simply proclaim the good news that Christ and the benefits of being in Christ are freely offered to all and that the work of Christ is efficacious. The work of Christ did what it was meant to do, what was planned before time, when he came and lived and died. So we could play that out a little bit more, but I want to highlight a couple things that, that ended up happening. So there's a couple dangers that not only were prevalent in the Church of Scotland at that day, they can be prevalent today. They can be prevalent in our church. They can be prevalent in us as individuals. Subtle ways of thinking about the nature of salvation and honestly thinking about the Heavenly Father. Um, and these played themselves out with that tiny little initial controversy that was started there in 1717. Um, first of all, we can unconsciously separate Christ from his benefits. We can start to think of the fact that, well, there is Christ, and then there are his benefits, and maybe I'm getting some of the benefits now, and how do then I get those benefits once I'm a believer? And all kinds of stuff can happen. I don't have time to, to dig into some of those details, but this is one of the things that has often happened, that did happen, and that can continue to happen when we separate the work of Christ and who Christ is and his benefits that are offered to him. The truth of the fact is that our union with Christ gives us Christ who is clothed in his gospel. There is no separation between who Christ is, the very nature of his person, and the benefits we receive as sons and daughters of the king. We have both the son and and the benefits he offered. So our union in Christ is crucial, and it became crucial in this controversy as well. The other thing that I want to hit on a little bit more is that we can view the Father's love, the very love of the Father, as this love that's kind of begrudgingly there because his Son decided to go and die and save us, and so because of the work of the Son, now God the Father has to say, all right, you did a good job, I will now love these people that you saved as well. In some senses, we can make the statement, God loves you because Christ died for you. And while that can be true, it can also be a subtle form of misunderstanding the very nature of our Father, the very nature of God himself and our relationship with him through 
the work of Christ. God died for you, or God loves you because Christ died for you. Is that meaning that God loves you and so he showed this innate love for his creation by sending his son to die for you? Or is it Christ came, Christ died, and because he did that, now, the God, now God the Father can love you? Um, I don't know if you saw in your bulletin this morning, I put a quote from Ferguson in there. We must not confuse the truth that our sins are forgiven only because of the death and resurrection of Christ. True, right? Our sins are only forgiven because of the death and resurrection of Christ with a very different notion that God loves us only because of the death and resurrection of Christ. Subtle difference, huge ramifications. No, he loved us from the first of time and therefore sent his son who came willingly to die for us. Do we have a tendency to divorce this grace in Christ that we talk about and sing about week in, week out with the fact that that is the outworking of the very love of the Father? Or do we have a mentality, do we make our own category confusions about the fact that God, we are deserving of God's wrath, and that is God's character. God the Father's character is this outright character of wrath, and it's only because of this appeasement of the sacrifice of his son that that is done away with, and now he can begrudgingly love us. There's a switch in character only because of the work of the son. We are deserving of God's wrath. God's wrath is perfectly just and righteous, and yet it's not an either-or with God the Father. While he is perfectly just and righteous, and rightfully wrathful against the rebellion of his creation. He is also at the same time a loving, loving father who, based on his own desires, his own being, his own character, chose to love in such a way that he would give the very greatest thing for the benefit and restoration of his creation. We don't serve a God who is only loving us and less than 100% so only because Christ came and died. This is unity. The fact that Christ came and died is unified with the fact that the Father is a loving, heavenly Father. And so we see these subtle tendencies that um, we can believe the lie of Eden rather than the original truth of Eden. And this is where the whole law gospel thing comes in, as we'll talk about in a minute. God gave Adam and Eve everything, a cosmos worth of his good and gracious gifts. And the law that was there could be called a positive law. This is what I have designed you to do. You are made in my image. Reflect me. Live in such a way that that reflection spreads itself out through the whole face of creation. This is a positive law. The, the law that he gives, and even in our minds, the negative command, don't do this, that is not because God the Father is this crotchety man, you know, unwilling to give graciously to his creation and to mankind. All of this plays out, again, of the very nature of God himself. All of these commands play out of who God is in and of himself, and they are for our good. They are because he loves us. And yet the lie came in. Satan bit Eve with a poison that said, this father that you are walking with is not a gracious God and loving heavenly father. He is 
self-centered, he's egotistical, he is one in whom he wants all the glory, he doesn't have his best, your best interest in mind at all. And so he's giving you this law, not because it's a reflection of who he is and it's for your good and your joy and delight, but he's giving it to you because he is a crotchety father, one who is heavy-handed, and he does it for your bondage. And that is the lie that Adam and Eve believed. That is the lie that continues to creep into our hearts and is <laughs> the basis of our sinful hearts until the Spirit awakens us to truth. And yet we know upon our justification, God declaring us lovingly that we are his, we understand that we still wrestle with these same type of tendencies. So, a simple practical application. As you live the Christian life, as you think of your salvation in Christ, is there a subtle way in which you disconnect the love of the Father from the work of Christ? I remember listening to a pastor that I know a little bit, uh, listening to him talking about discipling an individual who came from a bad background, didn't have a father figure in his life. And he was discipling him. This, this young kid was basically living in their home, living with this pastor's family. Um, and they would talk a lot, of course. They're doing life together. Um, but one of the things that this pastor initially noticed was that when they prayed together, this young guy would talk about God, and he would use all this terminology to talk about God, but he would never talk about him as father. He would never cry out to him as this loving father. And so this pastor just mentioned in passing, do you, do you even think of God as your father? Uh, and the, you know, the guy's like, well, yeah, sure, you know, I do, I do, no problem. I got that one down. Um, and it was a, a mental understanding that, yes, the Bible portrays God as a loving heavenly father, and yet it was not something that he had come to ex experientially realize yet and believe with his heart. And so it was through a long series of events, issues, and discussions where a noticeable change took place when he basically believed the gospel, that Christ is the representation of the love of the Father, and admitted that that was a struggle for him for a long, long time, that he could not look at God as a loving, loving God. This truth and all the things that took place with the nature of the law, um, the very character of God and the loving Heavenly Father played itself out and how they talked about how can we give this offer of the gospel? Who should we give it to? How and when? What should we be looking for? The Marrow men called for free grace given by God to be proclaimed to everyone, every time and place. But it also played itself out in legalism, antinomianism, and assurance. And so I'll quickly touch on these as well. So legalism is basically, I'm going to make some ties here between legalism and antinomianism. Legalism is a wrong view of the nature of the law and the nature of God. It's viewing the law apart from the nature of God. And we talked about really the essence of this just a minute ago as I talked about this poison first showing up in the garden, believing a lie, believing that this law given by God was in any way different than the very nature of God. Legalism looks at the father as the taskmaster, the heavy-handed person that throws a yoke of bondage on the sons and daughters. 
What it ends up doing, too, is it puts qualifications on the nature and order of salvation. It really was a legalistic spirit that was driving the view of the church at that time that said there are kind of like prerequisites to coming to Christ. You have to show that you're repentant. And once you show you're repentant, we can present you with the gospel, and then you can place your faith in the finished work of Christ. In contrast, the Merrow men were saying, not so. That is harmful. And even though the Spirit can work and bring people to the gospel with that kind of message, they're going to have a damaged outlook at what salvation is and who the Father is um, until they can see the gospel as this free grace from a, a loving, loving God. And so legalism was brought up as another ramification of this controversy. Uh, and as you look at the narrative in Luke 15, I'll touch on this a couple times here, you look at the narrative and you see the legalism of the elder brother at the end. We don't have time to read through this whole section, but I believe we know this parable relatively well. If not, read through it a couple times later. The elder brother reflects this poison of legalism. He, he can't understand why the father would love the son, the son being one in whom there were no prerequisites to be deserving of the father's grace. Whereas the elder brother said, I've done this stuff. This has been me all of life. I have lived this way. I've followed you. Why don't I get then what I think should be coming to me? And the father says, you don't understand. That's, that's not true. Number one, I have loved you in the same way for all of life. And what's mine has always been yours. You don't understand that. My love for you is the same as my love for this undeserving son. And yet the elder brother, because he doesn't understand the nature of his own father's character and love, serves his father not in delight, but in duty, in bondage. And this is legalism. Legalism presents itself in a myriad of ways. But I think for us, so often as we live life thinking that we have to do things, and even though God has justified us, we have to do some things to show that this is the case. We have to do certain things to continue to gain the love of the Father because we don't understand our union with Christ. We don't understand this union that the Merrillman fought for, this union that once tied with Christ we are the recipients of all the benefits that come with Christ. They're not two separate things. And that uh, in being unified with Christ, God's love for us doesn't change. It does not ebb and flow based on our ability to believe or have days where we struggle to believe. So legalism played itself out in a lot of ways in this controversy. And it plays itself out, again, by the very nature of misunderstanding the purpose of God's commands and who God is, and how they are designed to play out in our lives. The gospel and antinomianism, um, again, the Merrowmen were accused of being antinomians, um, and yet the irony is that they were basically more orthodox than the church uh, that they were a part of at that time. Um, they believed in orthodox theology, but also in uh, the experiential outworking of that theology that would give life to Bible truth. They were not antinomians. And let me pause for a minute. I've thrown out the word antinomian a few times now, and yet we don't understand a lot. We don't hear the word antinomian as much as we might be used to hearing the word legalist. Maybe it depends on your background and uh, what kind of churches or denominations you come from. Simply this, um, I would say, in the same way that legalism divorces the law of God in some way from his character, uh, antinomianism does the same thing 
Um, and in, in um, reaction to the problems of legalism, goes in the other direction and it denies the role of the law for the Christian life at all. It denies that God would give good commandments for us to walk in and obey because they are good and right and for our best. Now please, don't misunderstand or confuse antinomianism with the disturbing ailment of which my wife suffers from, antinomianism. <laughs> as bad as this ailment is, uh, it is not as bad as misunderstanding, again, the nature of the law, the nature of God the Father. <clears throat> we often think of legalism over here, antinomianism over here, and this gulf of a spectrum between those that work in bondage to the law and place laws on them that were not even laws that God gave and those that just eschew any kind of walking in obedience to uh, the good commands of the Savior. And yet they're rooted in the same thing. It extracts God's law from God's person and character. Paul brings this out in Romans 7. Romans 7 might not be as common to us, but Paul is just wrestling through the fact that he is indwelt by the Spirit of God, and yet he still is in the flesh. He still has this nature of wanting to pursue sin and, and his nature not understanding again that he is freed from bondage to sin. And he's wrestling through these things. And we often think of law as a bad thing, that this law of God is just, you know, it's, it's, it's just a dutiful thing. Or that was, that was for the people of Israel, like that was the thing that they had. And, you know, it was full of crazy type of stuff and doesn't really relate to me today because I'm in Christ, right? I'm of grace, not of law. And yet those statements and those understandings of things, again, show our misunderstanding of the nature of law and grace. And while there might be aspects of the law given to Israel that were for their time and place, it's uh, important to remember that the even basic Ten Commandments that God gave are not for a time and place. Christ didn't come to abolish everything. The, the law was written on tablets of stone. That was, the, that was a primary aspect of the law, even for the nation of Israel, these Ten Commandments that were written on stone. This was primary for them. But scriptures tell us that God came, or Christ came, not to abolish the law, not to do away with it, but to fulfill it. And what happens now is that law is not written on tablets of stone, but through the Spirit of God written on our hearts. It is not some external thing that we follow, this command that we in some way try to do in our own power, but that power is given to us through the Spirit and it is written on our hearts so that we love not just the law, but the lawgiver and they work together. So the corrective to legalism is not to run toward antinomianism. And in essence, that's what the son um, is struggling with here. Um, he's doing the opposite. He's running from antinomianism to legalism. You know, he goes and just squanders the money, does what he wants, and he's like, I need to go back to my father. And in order for my father to accept me, I'll offer to be his slave for the rest of life. That's what I'm going to do. Maybe he'll take me back if I offer to just serve him. Then what, of course, happens? He comes back, and the loving heavenly father, or the loving father says, no, you don't need to serve me. You're my son. Come and be all that you already are as my son and walk in obedience. 
so again, antinomianism has the same root problem. When we misunderstand the nature of the law, why God gives it both then and now for the life of the believer, calls us to walk in obedience, which is for our good, God's glory. It's a misunderstanding whether you're a legalist or an antinomian. And finally, in the last two minutes or so, uh, another thing the Marrow men focused on was just assurance of salvation. This was a natural ramification of the arguments already taking place with the, the nature of the gospel offer, legalism, antinomianism, was this idea of the gospel of assurance. And a couple of the things that they hit on, just quickly if you're writing things down, a couple of the things they hit on to affirm that assur- the assurance of the believer is good. Because again, recognize that too, not too long before this, uh, Europe and the UK was steeped in Catholicism that again put the cart before the horse and said work, 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 and maybe at the end of the life you can be justified by God. Um, and the gospel of the Reformation, biblical gospel, came in and said, no, you flipped that on its head. God justifies you, and then he gives you the power to walk in faith and loving obedience, and that you can be assured of that. Rather than having to do penance and offer money to the priests and ask them to do a bunch of stuff for you, you can be assured in the gospel. And they emphasize these things. First off, Christ and faith. The assurance of salvation is the fruit of faith in Christ. So again, there's not a disconnect between various aspects of assurance. Faith in Christ is primary. Grace and faith, this assurance of the work of Christ and his ability to do it is nourished on a clear understanding of grace and union with Christ once again, resting in the promises, walking in faith, all right, so don't discount, again, the work of obedience in this. To just be like, ah, I'm unified with Christ. Everything's good. I'll go run, do what I want. It not only misunderstands union with Christ, but it also doesn't take into a reflexive action of faith that we can be assured when we see the Spirit working in us to produce obedience. That is not the basis of things, but that, again, is a sign of assurance. Obedience can strengthen and confirm faith. And then the spirit of faith, they hit on this for quite a while. The truth found in Galatians and Romans, the fact that the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are sons and daughters of God. Um, I'd love to dig into this a little bit more. We don't have time, but the, the fact that Paul is mentioning in these books, the fact that we cry out, Abba, Father, that the spirit does that in us is in itself an assurance to the believer because an unbeliever doesn't cry out to God in such a way. The, the cry of Abba is not like this whispered lullaby, you know. This is the cry of somebody that is facing unbelief and struggling and going through things that they can't understand and they run to their Savior. They run to their loving Heavenly Father and call him essentially Daddy. Like, I need you. I understand who you are. This is the cry of Abba. This is what the Spirit does in his people um, at those times Understanding, again, the importance of two witnesses bearing uh, validity to a given truth. That was huge in Old Testament law. Um, And so the Spirit bears witness with ours. He adds his witness to our assurance and reminds us in the most needy times that we are, in fact, his as we see these other things playing out. So what is good about assurance of salvation 
understanding the nature of the things that we've seen today. Well, among other things, practically, practical outworkings, it produces boldness and witness. It gives us eagerness, gives us earnestness as we pray, as we fellowship with the Father. It can give poise and character while we face trials, sufferings, opposition. It produces in us joyful worship. It produces in us a desire to live not our own story, but in light of the story that God's placed us in, to go and live in light of these truths. So our views, not just of our head, but as they sink into our hearts, of God the Father, of our being unified with Christ, his spirit working in us, the goodness and necessity of the law for the Christian as we walk in obedience, that it is not a bad thing. Paul reminds us of that in Romans 7. I started to mention that and didn't. But he reminds us that the law is good and right and comes from a gracious God. It is not a bad thing. All of these things uh, are prime importance for our lives as disciples of Christ. And it should send us out into a world with humble confidence. We're more than conquerors in Christ. The Father's perfect will will be done in and through us. That's why the marrow controversy still matters. Uh, and that's why these things are just as important for us today as they were for these men in 1717 and men for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before that. I hope you take time to think again of the work of Christ, reflect and find joy in the salvation that is his and that it is the perfect representation, the perfect image of the love of our Heavenly Father in whom we are now sons and daughters. Let's pray. God, we give these simple truths to you today. They're simple, yet they're profound. I know that for us in a room this size with as many backgrounds as we have here, that there are probably multitudes of ways that we wrestle with the poison of the serpent to misunderstand the nature of God to misunderstand the nature of his laws, to misunderstand the nature of our union with Christ. And so, God, whatever way you're working in individuals today, whatever subtle forms of misunderstanding there might be, I pray that some correctives, some simply being reminded of truths would be used by you to work in us a humble confidence and joyful worship in fact that we are sons and daughters of a heavenly father that has loved us to the extent that he would give us the son and give us the spirit. So God, we thank you. We praise you. May our lives be lived in worship to you today. Christ, thank you for your work of atonement. And spirit, thank you for opening up our eyes to truth, to working so that we understand your word and that we can take it and apply it to our lives in everyday moments. And it's in these things that we pray. Amen.